Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of It, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 140. It's titled, How Climate Change Could Impact Your Investments and Your Life. In December 2016, President-elect Donald Trump said on Fox News regarding climate change that, quote, I'm still open-minded. Nobody really knows. Look, I'm somebody that gets it, and nobody really knows. It's not something that's so hard and fast. I do know this. Other countries are eating our lunch. Trump also mentioned he was studying the Paris Accord, the global climate agreement signed by 194 countries and ratified by over 100 nations that seeks to hold the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius. According to the agreement, each country will determine their respective non-binding level of contribution to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Trump says he doesn't want the Paris Agreement to put the U.S. at a disadvantage relative to other countries. I'm not sure what Trump's threshold is for really knowing something is absolutely certain, but if the standard of really knowing is 100% confidence with no qualifiers or room for doubt, then nobody really knows anything. Chuck Klosterman, in his book, But What If We're Wrong, points out that nobody really knows even when it comes to something as seemingly uncontroversial as gravity. Klosterman quotes author and theoretical physicist Brian Greene, who says, There is a very, very good chance that our understanding of gravity will not be the same in 500 years. In fact, that's the one arena where I think the most of our contemporary evidence is circumstantial and that the way we think about gravity will be very different. Green explained that for 200 years from the days of Isaac Newton until the early 1900s, there was no change in the consensus view regarding gravity. That's when Albert Einstein radically changed the perspective on gravity from being just a force to a warping of space and time. Now quantum mechanics is having an impact on how we describe gravity, and some scientists expect gravity might not even be a fundamental force, but an emergent force. Green says, so I do think, and I think many would agree, that gravity is the least stable of our ideas and the most ripe for a major shift. Philip Tetlock writes in his book, Super Forecasting, in science, the best evidence that a hypothesis is true is often an experiment designed to prove the hypothesis is false, but which fails to do so. Scientists must be able to answer the question, what would convince me that I am wrong? Scientists test their hypotheses by collecting data and then use their senses to evaluate and interpret the data to see if it disproves the hypothesis. The activity of science 
is a continual refutation of nihilism, which is the belief that life has no meaning. This is from the book Science Before Science by Anthony Rizzi. Scientists continually trust that the world is understandable, even more that it is understandable by us, is what Rizzi says. Now, Trump is correct that nobody really knows when it comes to climate change, just as nobody really knows for certain when it comes to most things in the world, even gravity. So where does that leave us regarding climate change? To the best of scientists' understanding, based on their leading hypotheses, which have been tested and not yet proven wrong, using data they collected and then interpreted with their senses— Each of the last three decades have been successively warmer at the Earth's surface than any preceding decade since 1850. That was the conclusion detailed in the Intergovernmental Panel on Global Climate Change 2014 Synthesis Report. The report states, The period from 1983 to 2012 was likely the warmest 30-year period of the last 1,400 years in the Northern Hemisphere. The globally average combined land and ocean surface temperature data, as calculated by a linear trend, show a warming of 0.85 degrees Celsius. The range is somewhere between 0.65 and 1.06 Celsius over the period from 1880 to 2012, when multiple independently produced data sets exist. When the report uses the term likely, they assign a 66% to 100% probability of it being true. That means they don't really know with complete certitude. Other qualifiers in the report include virtually certain, which they assign a 99 to 100% probability, and very likely, in which they assign a 90 to 100% probability, and finally, extremely likely, which they assign 95 to 100% probability. The report states that anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, I had to look up the word anthropogenic, it means caused by human activity. So these anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions have increased since the pre-industrial era, driven largely by economic and population growth, and are now higher than ever. This has led to atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide that are unprecedented in the least the last 800,000 years. Their effects, together with those of other anthropogenic drivers, have been detected throughout the climate system and are extremely likely to have been the dominant cause of the observed warming since the mid-20th century. In other words, the scientific consensus is there is a 95 to 100% probability that the majority of global warming is the result of human activity. Evidence of this warming is unequivocal according to the report. It includes diminished levels of snow and ice, rising sea levels, and an increase in the frequency of extreme weather events, including heat waves, droughts, and heavy precipitation events that cause flooding. Of course, as Trump says, nobody really knows for sure, and many Americans seem to agree with him. A 2014 survey in 20 countries by UK market research group Ipsos Mori found that the United States came in last in terms of the percentage of respondents, 54% who believe 
that climate change we are currently seeing is the result of human activity. Only 54%. The next lowest countries were Great Britain and Australia at 64%. And 90% of Chinese believe climate change is the result of human activity. In the survey, Americans were evenly split on whether they agree with the statement that even scientists don't really know what they're talking about on environmental issues. In the 1950s, the first comprehensive studies were conducted of lung cancer cases among smokers and non-smokers. The studies found that death rates from lung cancer were at least five times higher in the heavy smoking group than in non-smokers. In reviewing these studies, Charles Cameron, in a January 1956 article in The Atlantic, wrote, quote, there is in some quarters an unbecoming skepticism of statistics in general and of these remarkably consistent results in particular. By some, the findings are rejected because there is not laboratory proof linking tobacco use and cancer. Sixty years later, the evidence linking smoking and cancer continues to mount. A recent study published in the JAMA Internal Medicine Journal found that of the 167,000 cancer deaths in the United States in 2014, 29% were attributable to cigarette smoking. Those numbers were based on a 95% statistical confidence level, which means nobody really knows with absolute certainty that the linkage, linkage is there. Could it be that the lack of absolute proof linking smoking and cancer partially explains why 50, 15% of adult Americans still smoke? After all, nobody really knows. Probably not. It's more likely a case of what Christopher Day, the architect, architect, calls tunnel thinking. In his book, Spirit in Place, he writes, tunnel thinking permeates every aspect of life. So easy to turn up the heating, drive a walkable journey, buy synthetic materials or factory farmed food simply because we don't think about the pollution cost. Once those links are conscious, responsible choice is clear. I suspect when many smokers begin smoking, my, my father passed away at 54 from smoking. He had throat cancer. And I suspect when he started smoking and many others, they weren't really thinking about this linkage. We don't think about the consequence or the cost of our choices. And the same is true when it comes to climate change. I, I admit, for many years, you just don't. You drive the car, you fly all over the country, you own multiple homes, and you just don't think about the linkage between fossil fuel use and how it contributes to climate change. So if we don't believe that smoking causes cancer or that climate change is caused by human activity, we should, as any good scientist does, ask, what would it take to convince me that I'm wrong? So what are the impacts of climate change? In particular, we're going to talk about the investing impacts of climate change. But first, from the Intergovernmental Panel study, they say the first thing is food security. Climate change is projected to undermine food security, is what it says. Due to projected climate change by the mid-21st century and beyond, global marine species redistribution and marine biodiversity reduction in sensitive regions will challenge 
the sustained provisions of fisheries, productivity, and other ecosystem services. They have high confidence in that. For wheat, rice, and maize in tropical and temperature regions, climate change without adaption is projected to negatively impact production for local temperature increase of 2 degrees Celsius or more above the late 20th century levels, although individual locations may benefit. And so as climate change impacts, some some regions will definitely benefit and be able to producing crops. Others will be worse, but the report concludes it's a net negative. Climate change is projected to reduce renewable surface water and groundwater resources in most dry subtropical regions. Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times recently wrote about one frightened mom who lives in an isolated village on the island of Madagascar off the southern African coast. And her her son was malnutritioned. And Christoph was traveling there and asked her about America. Had she even heard of it? And she says, hadn't hadn't heard of America at all. Hadn't heard at all that about climate change and the impact of driving and oil use is having on climate change. And what we're seeing here is significant drought in Madagascar. He writes, climate change disproportionately caused by carbon emissions from America seems to be behind a severe drought that has led crops to wilt across seven countries in Southern Africa. The result is acute malnutrition for 1.3 million children in the region, the United Nations says. The immediate cause of the droughts was an extremely warm El Nino event, which came on top of a larger drying trend in the last few decades in parts of Africa. New research just published in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society concludes that human-caused climate change exacerbated El Nino's intensity and significantly reduced rainfall in parts of Ethiopia and southern Africa. The researchers calculated that human contributions to global warming reduced water runoff in southern Africa by 48% and concluded that these human contributions have contributed to substantial food crises. And there's a picture in the article, I'll link to it in the show notes. You can see this river basin, essentially nothing there, but crowds of people and cows getting what they can from the last little streams that flows through that valley. Another Impact is species extinction, and and the report talks about that. Coastal systems and low-lying areas are at risk from sea level rise, which will continue for centuries even if the global mean temperature is stabilized. And finally, there's economic impacts. In urban areas, climate change is projected to increase risk for people assets, economies, and ecosystems, including risks from heat stress, storms, and extreme precipitation, inland and coastal flooding, landslides, air pollution, drought, water scarcity, sea level rise, and storm surges. Similar effects for rural areas and in terms of food supply, food security, infrastructure, agricultural incomes, and they have high confidence that those things are going to be there. I first did an episode on climate change about a year ago, episode 87, Is This Normal? And I was prompted to do so again from an email I got from Nolan, who is a longtime listener and a member of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. 
He sent me an essay written by Alex Steffen. It was published on Medium. Alex Steffen is a, a futurist concerned about the economy. I had not heard of him, but he wrote a pretty compelling essay. A bit, a bit strident. I mean, he he's, has very, very strong opinions. He writes, this means we must limit the total amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse pollution we put into the sky. We have to meet a carbon budget. To meet that budget, we have to radically cut greenhouse gas emissions, burning way less oil, coal, and gas in the next two decades, and set the global economy on a steep path to zero emissions. Here's the blunt reality, he writes. The pressure to cut emissions and respond to a changing climate are going to alter what we do and don't see as valuable. Climate action will trigger an enormous shift in the way we value things. If we can't burn oil, it's not worth very much. If we can't defend coastal real estate from rising seas or even insure it, for that matter, it's not worth very much. If the industrial process a company owns exposes them to future climate litigation, it's not worth very much. The value of those assets is going to plummet inevitably, inevitably and likely soon. Now, what he's referring to is a, car, a carbon bubble, the idea that we have these assets that are valued assuming We'll be able to extract all the oil that's in the ground, that seas will not rise, that there won't be any type of financial impact on these assets from climate change. And if we realize that there is going to be an impact, then their value will plummet. As I went looking for other sources on this idea of a carbon bubble, I came across a speech by Mark Carney. He's the governor of the Bank of England. This was a speech to insurers. He says, while there are always room for scientific disagreement about climate change, as there is with any scientific issue, which we discussed in the early part of this this episode, he says, I have found that insurers are amongst the most determined advocates for tackling it sooner rather than later. And little wonder, while others have been debating the theory, you have been dealing with the reality. Since the 1980s, the number of registered weather-related loss events has tripled, and inflation-adjusted insurance losses from these events have increased from an average annual average of around $10 billion in the 1980s to around $50 billion over the past decade. Now, there's evidence that there is being a financial impact due to weather-related events from climate change. He sees three broad channels where climate change can impact financial stability. First, it gives the physical risk, the impact today on insurance liabilities and the value of financial assets that arise from climate and weather-related events. And so the actual losses in terms of floods, storms, and damage property, how it could disrupt trade. Second, he sees liability risk. The impact that could arise tomorrow if parties who have suffered losses on damage from the effects of climate change seek compensation from those they hold responsible. So litigation related to it. Finally, he sees transition risk, the financial risk which could result from the process of adjustments toward a lower carbon economy. This is the idea of the carbon bubble. He says changes in policy, technology, and physical risk could prompt a reassessment of the value of a large range of assets as cost and opportunities become apparent. 
The speed at which such repricing occurs is uncertain and could be decisive for financial stability. There have already been a few high-profile examples of jump to distress pricing because of shifts in environmental policy or performance. Now, one example is coastal real estate or any real estate in a low-lying area. If insurance rates go up or they don't want to insure at all because of the the rising seas and not just the, the these huge tidal tides during a certain part of the year, the tides come in are huge. You see it in Venice. Last time we were in Venice, they they have little platforms you walk on because during the winter, sometimes these huge super tides come in and flood the city. That is becoming more commonplace in other areas. Miami, Florida, where there, there are just very, very expensive property. If we get to the point where insurers are unwilling to insure or the federal government starts charging market rates for flood insurance, because flood insurance is based on this concept of a 100-year flood. And, and, that, and then they're, they're, they're set up that way. But if the floods become more severe, then they have to reassess the, reassess the rates. And government accountants already looked at and determined that the federal government is providing a huge subsidy in terms of the this flood insurance. They're not charging market rates. And you can't get a mortgage in a flood zone. And if the flood zones are expanding as they they sort of reassess and, and the rates go up, then the value of that real estate becomes much less because if you can't insure, that's going to be a, a definite trigger. Now, the impact of storms, rising seas on property values and insurance rate, that that seems inevitable whether climate change is solved or not, whether governments and policymakers get together and solve that. Those are impacts that are going to be there. What is unclear is whether policies are put in place that limit the amount of oil being taken out of the ground, in which case the value of energy companies is going to be severely impacted by that. That's unknown. Carney says if the if the transition is more gradual, if there's more transparency, then then hopefully there you don't have a disruption to financial stability. But it, it especially when you listen to the rhetoric of Trump, it's unclear whether there will ever be anything like a carbon budget or cap and trade system. So the bulk of the at least for now, the investment impact seems to be the financial impact related to the consequences of climate change, not the consequences of policies trying to solve climate change. Now, what can you do personally? The, the thing that I did, because I don't know what government's going to do, I think climate change is real. And so I feel I can't have tunnel vision and and ignore the consequences of my actions. And so what I did is I looked at how much carbon dioxide am I using. I went to a carbon calculator and I calculated to see. I went to its a personal, it's called a carbonfootprint.com. And in all the links I've shared in today's episode, I've had a, a number of different links and sources. You can get those in the show notes for episode 140 at moneyfortherestofus.net. Also, please sign up for my insider's guide and I'll email those links to you 
right after the episode's released, and a summary article that covers what we covered in that week's episode. You can sign up for that Insider's Guide. It's free at moneyfortherestofus.net, or if you're a U.S.-based listener, text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. So I used the calculator at carbonfootprint.com, and I figured out how much CO2 in terms of heating the home that we used to own in Rexburg, Idaho, we sold, we moved out to our farm to see what we were spending there. We were spending 15.5 metric tons of carbon dioxide in that home in Rexburg. When we sold, it was incredibly inefficient, about 1,800 square foot home, electric heat, very, very inefficient. Then we moved to the farm. We used about 12.2 metric tons of, of carbon dioxide there. And now we sold that and we moved to an even smaller home, more energy efficient, nine and a half metric tons of carbon dioxide. But just measuring to know what you use and then see if you can reduce it. It's kind of a game. Travel. When I traveled, I estimated that I expended with all my flights when I was investment professional, 18.9 metric tons of carbon dioxide, typical per year. Last year, about 3.62 metric tons of CO2. And I didn't take that many trips. And so travel is certainly also an impact. Well, we have to we have to measure it and and not and and think about the consequences of the choices we make. By living near downtown, we can walk to a lot of restaurants instead of driving 26 miles round trip to the grocery store like we used to do out of the farm. But we have to take personal responsibility because, frankly, to wait for the government to to do something, given half the country, only 54% of the country believes that in the U.S. that that humans actually cause climate change and, and the fact that we're never going to know for sure. All we have are the probabilities. The probability says humans have an impact, in which case we can't have t- tunnel vision. We have to take personal responsibility. So that's episode 140. Mention you get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money investing the economy. Have a great week.